You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for February 2010. Today's episode is titled, Be an Effective Problem Solver. Life is rife with problems both for individuals and organizations. Problems are situations and circumstances that impair our ability to achieve objectives as individuals and as organizations. A sound understanding of reality is the starting point. It is foundational. Don't be like King Ahaz who misinterpreted reality because of his disobedience to God. Be a great problem solver like Jesus, who lived in alignment with God's will and God's ways. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Be an Effective Problem Solver. Delighted to be with you tonight as we talk about Jesus' method for achieving goals. So let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness, for your goodness, your loving kindness. We thank you for your son Jesus, who died and gave us life. And Father, we thank you for this time tonight that we can study together and learn together. Lord, uh, grant us grace to hear your voice tonight. And give us courage to bend the knee in submission to your will. So Father, we commit this time to you. Say, Lord, your will be done in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first, a little, little lightheartedness here. Uh, here's, a, here's a cartoon from our famous uh, Dilbert characters. It says, there's no purpose uh, for this meeting other than my boss told me to have it. So let's just sit here silently until our time is up, unless you have something better to do. And he says, not really. And sadly, that uh, pictures a lot of us in the way we live. We, we don't really have any real sense of purpose, direction, don't have any real reason for doing a lot of the things we do other than somebody told us to do it. Or maybe your uh, life is something like this. Um, just listen to this story. And just picture yourself walking through the day just like this person did. I decided to wash my car. As I start, start toward the garage, I noticed that there is mail on the hall table. I decided to go through the mail before I washed the car. I lay my, my car keys down on the table put the junk mail in the trash trash can under the table, and notice that the trash can is full. So I decide to put the bills back on the table and take out the trash first. But then I think, since I'm going to be near the mailbox where I, where I take when I take out the trash anyway, I may as well pay the bills first. I take out my checkbook off the table and see that there is only one check left. My extra checks are in my desk in the study. So I go to my desk where I find the can of Coke that I had been drinking. I'm going to look for my checks, but first I need to push the Coke aside so that I don't accidentally knock it over. I see that the Coke is getting warm, and I decide I should put it in the refrigerator to keep it cold. As I head toward the kitchen with the Coke, a vase of flowers on the counter catches my eye. They need to be watered. I set the Coke down on the counter, and I discover my reading glasses that I've been searching for all morning. I decide I better put them back on my desk, but first I'm going to water the flowers. I set the glasses back down on the counter and fill a container with water, and suddenly I spot the TV remote. Someone left it out on the kitchen table. I realize that tonight, when we go to watch TV, I'll be looking for the remote, but I, don't remember, I won't remember that it's on the kitchen table. So I decide to put it back on, in the den where it belongs, but first I'll water the flowers. I splash some water on the flowers, but most of it spills on the floor. So I set the remote back down on the table, get some towels, and wipe up the spill. <laughs> then I head down the hall, trying to remember where I was plan- what I was planning to do. At the end of the day, the car isn't washed, the bills aren't paid, there's wa- a warm Coke, a can of Coke sitting on the counter, 
The flowers aren't watered. There's still only one check in my checkbook. I can't remember find the remote. I can't find my glasses, and I don't remember what I did with my car keys. Then when I try to figure out why nothing really got done today, I'm really baffled because I know I was busy all day long, and I'm really tired. I realize that it's a serious problem, and I'll try to get some help for it. But first, I'll check my email. Sadly, a lot of us probably really identify with that story. Uh, That describes our life of just uh, kind of aimlessly wandering around, seeing things that need to be done and thinking, well, I need to do that. And as we start to do it, we see something else and we get distracted and we wind up not doing hardly anything. And that's, that's the picture of what it is to live basically without goals, without any clear, definitive direction and focus in your life. So let's just get some definitions here before we get into this. Let's talk about what a goal is. Goals are statements of objectives that support a strategic plan, and they include three key elements. First element of a goal is there's got to be an owner. The second element is there's got to be a deadline. And the third element is there has to be a measurable metric. If you don't have those three elements, you don't have a goal. You may have a dream. You may have a wish. You may have a desire, but you don't have a goal. And this is true both for individuals and organizations. Goals are tools of transformation. And, of course, I've got this text here, Matthew 16, about Jesus. This is a great text because uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of which is such a, such a clear picture of strategic living. Uh, Matthew 16:21. from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Now, the context of this is the whole question and issue of Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? And when they articulated that they understood who he was and his identity is defined in relationship to the Father, then he began to explain to them his destiny. And his destiny involved goals. It involved objectives. It involved steps. You can see this little picture here of people going up these steps here to get to their goal at the top. Well, that's a picture of what goals are. They're steps. They are, they're, they're objectives that, that are intermediate uh, points that we come to in our life that lead us to where we think we're supposed to go. Now, the purpose of goals is transformation. It is transformation. Transformation is death to self and the assumption of a biblical worldview. And when we do that, that leads to alignment with the will of God. And I just want to show you this text in Romans 12, 1 and 2, which I think is one of the really pivotal texts in Scripture after Paul's great argument and discussion about, um, about this essence of the gospel and the work of Christ. First 11 chapters of Romans are the most systematic presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ we have in Scripture. If you haven't studied those those chapters, I urge you to do that. This will give you great understanding of what of what Christianity is all about. And so when he when he concludes in chapter eleven with this great uh, benediction, and then he rolls into chapter twelve to basically say, okay, now let's bring this down to the real world that we live in. He says, therefore, which means as a result of all that's gone before, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And, of course, he's immediately looking back in his presentation here to the Jewish sacrifices of the Old Testament. And, they, and of course, 
the Jewish people would understand immediately about living sacrifices. And so he's saying that's what you're supposed to do in this New Testament time, the time of the New Covenant, the time of the church age. You are supposed to be living as, as living sacrifices, which means it is no longer about your will. It is only about God's will. That's the only thing that counts. Jesus in the garden gave us the picture when he, when he said, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. He was bending the knee, submitting his will to the will of the Father. That's what counted. That was the strategic objective that Jesus lived by. And so Paul is taking that same theme here, and he's saying this, living that way where it's not my will but thy will be done is your spiritual act of worship. Sometimes I, I wonder about our definition of worship today. Uh, we've gotten into a, a paradigm where people think uh, that worship is music. Now, certainly music can be a tool to facilitate worship, and I'm sure we all have our favorite songs that really help us you know, enjoy the presence of the Lord. But real worship, the worship that really, really counts is transformation. You know, if you have somebody come in your congregation and they're in absolute rebellion against God and they, they dance around and jump and scream and holler and, and act like they're worshiping God, are they really worshiping God? The reality is they're not because it doesn't matter what you sing. What matters is are you being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ? And if that's happening, then that's worship going on. Then he goes on to say, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That is to the world views, to the ideology, to the thinking of the world, to the world's systems. And the world has all kinds of counterfeit systems that they're offering every day. We live in a very postmodern culture worldwide. And if you're not familiar with that, I urge you to do some reading on what postmodernism is and how it's imp- impacting you and the community of Christians that you're with. I assure you it's impacting you. It's impacting you in ways that you probably don't even understand. In fact, at the alumni event uh, at the end of the month, I'm going to spend some time talking about the impact of postmodernism and how that's impairing us in our not only in our churches, but individually in our journeys to find our destiny. So do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. The word transform transform here is metamorphe, which means be transformed by heat and pressure, by the renewing of your mind. You need to think differently, and the thinking needs to be so profound in you, it obviously will change the way you act. And when that begins to happen in you, something incredible then takes place. You now will be able to discern, to recognize the will of God. The good, perfect, pleasing will of God. Now that's an amazing thing. I wish we had time just to explore what that means. But, you know, there's another great error of today that I see frequently in Christian communities. And that is the assumption that people can hear the will of God independent of the word of God. Or they can hear the will of God independent of transformation. If if I'm understanding Paul correctly, he's telling me here, if I want to discern the will of God, I need to start thinking like God thinks. I need to be a living sacrifice, submitting everything in my life to the will of God. 
So that's what goals are about. Goals are tools to help us do this very thing right here. To live as living sacrifices, dying to self, so it's God's will, not our will, being done in our lives. Now, sadly, we don't think at this level. Um, we think very worldly. We set goals both personally and organizationally to achieve our definition of success. And we define success as money and power and fame and so forth. It really has nothing to do with what real success is. Jesus defined real success for us in John 17:4, when he said at the end of his life that he completed the work that God had given him to do. That was his definition of success. So as long as we operate like the world, we're going to be out of sync with the Lord. In fact, here's a text that illustrates how we operate. You've all seen this, this story in Luke 12. It's a little parable that Jesus tells. It says, The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, Ah, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I will store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Here's the reality check. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. You see, we buy into the world's thinking. And this is the world's thinking. Eat, you know, take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. So we just decide what we want to do, when we want to do it, and how we want to do it. In fact, we think that's the end game. I mean, for most people that are working in most big organizations... The, if you spend any time with it at all, it doesn't take you long to realize their real agenda is retirement. And that's the reason they're sticking around, is retirement. So, the, And it's not for the gold watch, it's for the pension. So the pension, they think, gives them the ability to go do what they want to do, when they want to do it, how they want to do it. It's like, that's when I really start living, is when I get my pension. And that's worldly thinking. You see, the problem is, is we haven't really understood the game. The game is all about the will of God. The game is about alignment with God. The game is not what I want to do. The game is not what car I want to drive, what house I want to live in, what vacation spot I want to go to, how much money I want in the bank, you know, you know, how big a wardrobe I want. That's not the game. The game is taking everything that we have in life and submitting it to the will of God. Here's the problem. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see, we tend to be modern-day hedonists. A hedonist is somebody who's consumed with pleasure, fun, entertainment. We've, we've elevated pleasure, fun, and entertainment almost to an entitlement. We think we're entitled to these things. And so that's what we live for. We live for fun. And when that's what it's all about, you are not going to hear the will of God. And so if that's the way you're living, then one of the things that you need to expect is you're not going to have a lot of success. That's not going to work very well. As a result of ill-conceived goals, we can expect failure. Now, why is this? Why would we expect failure? What would cause these failures? Now, the world offers us a number of thoughts on this. And here's some very common 
assumed reasons why people fail to achieve goals. This came right off the Internet and just off a website that I found. And, and these, these sound like reasonable reasons why goals would not be achieved. For example, you might get frustrated. Or how about over-planning? You know, paralysis by analysis, we've all heard that terminology. How about just got discouraged? Or maybe, you know, you weren't given a deadline for your goals. So, you know, if you don't have a deadline, then you don't have anything you're really working toward. Or maybe you have a lack of enthusiasm, or maybe you didn't have supportive people around you. Or maybe the, the approach to your goal was too vague and it really wasn't clear enough. Or maybe you just lack commitment. And all of those are reasons why goals are not achieved. But there's a real more fundamental reason than this. And that more fundamental reason is, is illustrated here in this little picture here. This is a picture of Paul on the road to Damascus. And he had a reality check. He had a goal. The goal was to go to Damascus and, and, and arrest the people that call themselves followers of Christ. That was his objective. Paul was the owner. The metric was to arrest these people. And the deadline was as soon as he could get there. And he's on his way right now. And on the way, he has an encounter. Because what he discovered was that if God is not supporting his goals, then it's probably not going to get done. Because it's an ill-conceived goal. You see, God supports alignment with himself. That's what God's after. That's where you find favor and provision. That's where you find wisdom and discernment. It's when you're doing things that God has called you to do. So we've got to learn to set goals that line up with the will of God. That's a big challenge right there because most of us are not deep enough into the transformation process to discern the will of God. So the process for most of us before you start setting a bunch of goals, it's just to get deep into the process of transformation so we can begin to discern the will of God. And as we discern the will of God, now we can begin to set some goals to achieve the things that God has called us to do. So the method for achieving goals can be seen very clearly if you look at the success of Jesus. Just like Paul was a great picture on the Damascus Road of why goals don't work, is when you're bucking God. In fact, the text there is, you know, says Jesus asked him, Why, Paul, are you kicking against the goads? The goads are those pointy things on the end of sticks that shepherds use to encourage sheep to stay in line and stay in the herd. And obviously when you hit them with that little pointed thing, it stings, it hurts. So here's Paul kicking against the pointed things. He's trying to rebel, and the Lord's not going to let him out of that thing. And so he has that reality check. Well, Jesus is the opposite. He's living in total harmony with the Father. You see, his success is rooted in unrelentingly focusing his life on alignment with the will of the Father. John 5.19 says this, And the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. I have a grandson, and... Uh, I recently was reminded of this text by watching my grandson. He's he's approaching four years old, and he's at that age where he absolutely copies everything. Whatever you say, he will turn around and say it. And so you have to be very careful what you say around him because he is truly a son, and he's going to copy his father. And uh, his father has learned the hard way about being very, very cautious about what he says because sometimes... Things come out of 
Gabriel's mouth that his father doesn't want to come out of his mouth. Well, this is inherent in, in a father-son relationship. The son, a true son, is always bound to the father and does whatever the father does. And see, when we become so so clear about our sonship, it's so deep in us, then we will be able to say what Jesus said, that I only do what the Father does. And I, by virtue of my transformation, I can now see and discern what the Father's doing, and that's where I go work. Where the Father's working is where I work. You know, it's a wonderful thing that that's, that's God's system. That's the kingdom way. Because if that wasn't the kingdom way, the needs of the world would just overwhelm us. Because every day you can go out and find things that need to be done. There's no end of things that need to be uh, be done. And they're, they're genuine things that need to be done. But the beautiful thing is you haven't been assigned to do all those things. You've only been assigned, assigned to do certain things. And as you discern the things that God has called you to do by God giving you revelation to see them and giving you a strategy to do them and then goals to execute, then you begin to do what the Father's doing and you function as a son. So that's Jesus' method of achieving goals is alignment as a son. Only alignment with the will of God works. Notice this proverb 21 verse 30. There is no wisdom... No insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Now, some of you might think, well, gee, Jesus died. Uh, the plan of the Jews succeeded against the Lord. No, what you've got to understand is the Jews were simply doing the will of God. Look at Acts 22, verse 23. This man, this is Peter talking, and he's talking to a lot of Jews that day on the day of Pentecost. This man was handed over to you, that is the Jews, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, that would be the Romans, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see, even the death of Jesus was part of the plan of God. And, of course, we know the other side of that was the resurrection of Jesus. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to to keep hold of him. You see... When we do things that are lined up with God, they may not always be pretty. They may be painful, but the end result is beautiful because God's will was done. And that's our job. We are, we are here to do the will of God, not our will. Now let's look at some keys to Jesus' alignment here. And I just picked out seven keys here. And you could probably find some more, and that's, you know, great, go for it. But I think these are just seven keys that, to me, that were very essential to illustrate how Jesus lived versus how we live. So you see, I've got three columns here. I've got uh, four columns. First, you've got the keys, identity, authority, boundaries, process, mission, accountability, motive. The next column is how we live. This is how we respond to these various keys. Then we see how Jesus responded to the keys and the scripture that supports how Jesus lived. And I think it goes without saying that Jesus lived according to the word. In fact, he was the one that said in Matthew 4, as he was being tempted by Satan, and he was so hungry, and Satan was trying to get him to fulfill his destiny illicitly, Jesus said, look, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he says that when he is in dire need of food. Now that's, that's the level 
of sacrifice, of death to self that Jesus lived at. Denying everything to serve his Lord. So how do we live? Well, let's look at identity. Identity is really the uh, who are we? Well, we tend to identify ourselves by what we do. Most of us, if we introduce ourselves, uh, we introduce ourselves in light of what we do. We might say, uh, hello, my name, Ger- my name is Gerald. I'm a consultant. So I have, ad- I have identified with what I do. I don't think very many people would walk up to say, hello, my name is Gerald. I'm a son of the Most High God. Yeah, that would be kind of weird in our culture. But I think that's the kind of thing Jesus would do because Jesus realized he was a human being, not a human doing. And so his identity was in his being, his relationship with his his creator. I, in this case, his heavenly father. In our case, our creator. Okay, He was identifying with his relationship with his father as the son of the father. So his being drove him, not his doing. In, uh, in our case, our doing drives us. So that's a major misalignment we have. If we want to live like Jesus lived, if we want to have success with our goals like he did, we've got to start thinking of our being as our identity, not our doing. The next thing is authority. We are very independent people. We don't want anybody to tell us anything. We want to do it ourselves. It's so interesting to watch my grandson again as he's growing up. Um, as soon as he could you know, start getting into the car seat by himself and buckle himself up by himself and open the door by himself, he didn't want anybody to do it for him. He wanted to do it himself. That he, he's the streak of independence is already setting in him, and I had such hopes that he would be free from sin, but I guess he's not going to be. So this is a problem we all have: is this independent spirit? Jesus lived dependently. He was always submitted to the will of the Father. And I think one of the most fascinating texts in Scripture is Matthew eight, where this is the encounter of Jesus with a centurion who had a sick slave. And the centurion wanted Jesus to heal him. And Jesus said, okay, well, I'll come do that. And the centurion showed Jesus something that Jesus had not seen with anybody else. He showed him what faith really is. You see, faith is recognizing how God's universe works. And the centurion said this. He says, you don't need to come. Just say the word. He recognized Jesus had the power in the word, just like the Father And when he created the universe, Jesus had the power to create and to heal just in the words. And it didn't matter where he was. Distance was no issue. It says this is one of the few times instead of Jesus vector. I think this may be the only time where Jesus was amazed. He was amazed because he had not seen such faith in all of Israel. You see, faith is about being dependent. It's about trusting someone else. Jesus lived dependent upon the Father at all times. Boundaries. We absolutely hate boundaries. We think boundaries are a nuisance. Boundaries get in the way. Boundaries block us. Boundaries keep us from doing what we want to do. And so we reject boundaries. How did Jesus respond to boundaries? He embraced them. When he said, I only do what I see the Father doing, he is putting a boundary in his life. He's saying, this is the restriction I'm going to live under. You know, it's hard for us to really get it that the Son of God had to live within boundaries. That just seems so foreign to us because our concept is boundaries are bad and therefore someone that is so perfect like Jesus, he doesn't need any boundaries. No, he needed boundaries because he was determined to only do the will of God. Then you have process. 
Well, you know, we, you know, we understand process, but we're not very patient with process. Most of us, we want it and we want it right now. We're in an instant society, instant culture, instant gratification, instant uh, entertainment, instant food, instant coffee, instant tea. Everything is instant. We don't wait for anything. Well, how did Jesus live? Well, he showed very clearly he knew that there was timing involved in his destiny. So he was very patient and waiting for the right time. There were times when, you know, he clearly slipped away because it was not the time to have the interchange that people were trying to have. Jesus was so tuned into the Father, he knew the timing, the timing of the Father. Wow, that is a level of transformation that most of us, you know, don't have any sense of. You know, we see something, we think we see something, we think it's from God, and we want to go for it right now, instead of asking the Lord for his timing. Mission. Most of us could not write a clear mission statement. I have been working with people for years, trying to help them learn how to write a mission statement. And a mission statement is a succinct summary of of who you are, of who you're called to serve, of what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to do it, and why do you do it. Those five key questions basically are answered in a mission statement. At least that's my perspective on it. A mission statement is a tool to keep me on track. It is part of my boundary. If I don't have a mission statement, I don't have very clear boundaries. And what I find is almost no one can articulate a clear mission statement. The most mission statements I see are very broad, very vague, and they can't be used to screen hardly anything. Your mission statement, as you get clear on who you are, as you get more transformed, as you get more aligned with the biblical worldview, as you discern the will of God more clearly, you will get much more clarity on your mission statement, and you'll be able to articulate it like Jesus did. Jesus was clear on what his mission statement was. And just look at Luke 19.10. That's an example where he states his mission statement right there about the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And, of course, that's a whole other message right there is what was he talking about. That's a powerful discussion right there. Then we have accountability. Well, how do we live? Well, we're, this is kind of like boundaries. We don't like it. We don't want to be accountable. And over and over again, I, I have. It seems like I have daily conversations with clients and um, and individuals that I that I give my time to about this issue of accountability. And invariably, it's the same discussion. People are making decisions, big decisions about their life, with no input from anyone. And therefore, no accountability. If you're not conveying to people what you believe God is calling you to do, you're living unaccountable. You know, to be accountable, you have to be transparent. You have to have your C4 advisors in the discussion with you about what God is calling you to do. And as you begin to discuss with them and discern with your advisors what you're supposed to be doing, then good C4 advisors are going to hold you accountable. They're going to ask you about it. And so this is one of the reasons I think we are having so many problems in our Christian community is we are not accountable. We are not living in community. We are trying to live independently. In a minute, I'm going to show you a graph and show you how, how foolish that is. And then you can see, of course, Jesus clearly lived an accountable life. 
He was continually communing with the Father, continually praying, talking to the Father, asking for direction and wisdom from the Father. You know, even down to the, the Garden of Gethsemane, where that's his great, his great final prayer with the Father, where he's agonizing over his destiny right there. He spends an hour praying before he goes to his death. He knows he's going to die. Most of us, if we knew we were going to die, we would not spend an hour praying. We'd probably spend an hour panicking, fretting, running, doing something else, but we wouldn't spend an hour praying. Jesus sought always the will of the Father. And then motive. You know, our motive is mostly our will. It's our pleasure, our comfort, what we want to do. Jesus was never about his will. He was only about the will of God. That's the only thing that counted. Everything in his life was done with with the will of God in mind. That was success for him, was obedience to the will of God. So how do we practice these keys? If, if you buy these keys as these are things that you want to do, how do you do this? Well, first of all, you need to know the scriptures. It's, it's fascinating how the relationship with God in scripture is described as knowing God. In fact, in Second Peter chapter 1, it says that we have everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is a relational reality. It's not just a cognitive reality. We tend to think of knowledge as cognitive. God, it relates to us like any other human being. If we get to know each other, we're getting to find out about each other. You know, how we think and and, and how we process information and how we respond and what's important to us and, and, and what makes us laugh and what makes us cry. These are all things we get to know. We also get to know our ways. We get to know what we do well and what we don't do well and how we go about doing things that we do well. You know, we need to get to know God and the ways of God. And that's what the, the scriptures are all about. If you're not in the Word, learning the Word, you're not de- developing the tools to be lined up with God. Then you have to have prayer for alignment. One of the things that, that really saddens me today is most often we pray the wrong prayers. We typically pray prayers of deliver me from this problem, send me money, give me a job, relieve me from this pain. Those are the kinds of prayers that we pay, pray. If you look at how Paul prayed, Paul didn't pray those kinds of prayers. He prayed prayers of growth through circumstances, not relief from circumstances. Now, see, that's a big difference. We want relief, and Paul is saying, I don't want to give you relief. I want you to grow through it, because that circumstance in your life has been designed by God to do something, to do something really good, to bring forth maturity in Christ in you. And say, so we need to start praying, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. We want to line up with you, and we want to press through, and we want to learn the lessons of every circumstance that you put in our life. Then we have to have a strategic plan with the right goals. In other words, we have to have goals that line up with God's will for our life. We've got to discern that will and then set goals to, to achieve those objectives that he gives us, and that t- requires strategic thinking. Jesus lived very strategically. And finally, we have to live in community. If we don't live in community, we are, we, we are basically disobeying one of the great rules of God's universe. He said in Genesis chapter 2, right out of the box, it is not good that man be alone. The first thing in all of Scripture that, of which it is said, it is not good. Everything else up to that point, 
that God had declared to be good. And this is the one thing in creation that initially was not good. And, of course, God rectified it by making the woman. We have got to be in community, and we mostly don't know what that means, but we've got to learn to do that or we will never be lined up well with the will of God. I want to just show you the impact of your personality profile on achieving your goals. This is important for you to understand. If you're going to achieve goals, you've got to understand how God's goals get achieved. So who is it that makes goals? Who is it that that can help us achieve these goals? What are the processes, etc.? Well, this gets back to the way God made people. And none of us is strong in all the four personality components. We're all strong generally in two. Occasionally there's somebody that's strong primarily in one, but most of us are strong in two of the components and weak in the other two. So how do these components play into achieving goals? So let's just take the D, the dominance. Uh, A low D personality does not set goals. Low D personalities Mm -hmm. are not driven. They do not think about results. Now, high D personalities are very driven. They're very result-oriented. These people are the goal setters. These are the greatest goal setters or high Ds. If you're not a high D, if you're low D, you need to find a high D in your community to help you set goals. Because if you don't have a high D partnering with you, you will probably never set goals. The influencing, the I people, the low I's, they don't let social needs impede their goals. In other words, low I's are not highly socially motivated, Okay, which, which that can be helpful because getting real social can get in the way. But also, there's a positive side to being a high I. High I's can be very fun-loving, and fun can be helpful because sometimes goals can get very serious, and you need relief, you need breaks, you need rest. And I's can bring fun at the same time, a high I tends not to set goals because they think goals impede their social needs. And so I's need to be very sensitive to having D's around to be sure that they can have goals. And the, and these goals need to be well-defined in conjunction with their community. Then you have the S's, the steady people. The low S personality has a lack of routine, which means they don't have a lot of follow-through. They don't like to do things over and over again. Well, that can be an impediment because sometimes in achieving goals, you have to be persistent. You have to do things over and over again, and you have to be patient. And the low S's, they just don't want to fool around with it. Well, the high S's, they have good and bad there. It's it's good that they're routine-oriented, but sometimes they're so routine-oriented, they, they don't want to change. And goals are about change. Goals are about transformation. Then you have the compliant people. The low C's disdain detail, which impedes their thoroughness. And the high C's, they, they have great attention to detail, but sometimes they're so caught up with the details that they never quite get the the goal done because it's never perfect enough. And so the high C's are wonderful accountability partners. They're always asking, are we on target? Are we, are we do, going where we're trying to go? Are we doing what we want to do? The D's are great at goal setting. The I's can provide us relief for fun when, you know, fun when we need it. The S's can give us our steadiness. So you can have all these components in your community, and if you bring them all to bear on your goal setting, you will most likely come up with a great set of goals, and you will be held accountable to achieving those goals, and in the end, you will have good success. Now, you may not like everything that happens when you live that way. I had a phone call just the other day, and there's a gentleman that was talking to me about a, 
a very dysfunctional situation in an organization. And this organization has been around for well over a decade. It was the founder of the organization is the problem, which is a very typical scenario. And it's a, it's a typical situation where the founder is very independent. He doesn't listen to anybody. It's all his agenda. It's his way or the highway. And uh, he's very whimsical. And as a result, it just it creates a lot of chaos in the organization. And the organization is really not going anywhere. And so this guy is a friend, and he's trying to figure out what to do. And I shared with him about the importance of living in community and bringing all aspects of the personalities to bear on setting goals and holding us accountable. And you could tell as I was sharing this with him, he's just kind of moaning and groaning because he realizes that he's going to—he's now getting revelation and he's accountable, and he's going to have to now step up to a new level of, of accountability with his friend. And he knows what the reaction is going to be, and that is going to be real negative. Because most of us don't really want to submit to the will of God. Most of us just want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. And when that doesn't work, we just want to throw a pity party or throw a temper tantrum. And the way we're called to live is in healthy, godly, honest, transparent communities where iron sharpens iron. Where we love each other enough to tell each other the truth and we don't let each other off the hook. We know that... Staying on the hook is for the highest good of everybody. So that's how we've got to begin to learn to live. This is the way Jesus lived. In completeness, his goals were set by the Father, and his Father held him accountable to those goals. So Jesus' method for achieving goals was really very simple. It was alignment with the will of the Father. That was the game. That's the only thing that mattered to him. And there is always power and provision to do the will of God. Remember Matthew 6.33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's a powerful text. You see, it tells me that if I focus on seeking first the kingdom and doing it according to his ways, which is righteousness, then he takes care of all my provision. Now, it may not always be pretty. It may not be the way I want it to be done. But he takes care of it. And I can tell you, I've lived a lot of years, and he has always been faithful to take care of it. Even when I haven't been very faithful to seek first the kingdom, he's always taking care of me. But I know as I I'm get better and better at seeking first the kingdom and doing it righteously, I know that he will continue to be faithful even more and more. So let's summarize here these seven keys to achieving goals. Number one, you got to get clear about your identity. You're not a human doing. You're a human being. And that means you have to understand who you are in relationship to your creator. Secondly, you have to submit to God and his delegated authority. You see, God works through authority. He works through parents and teachers, employers, through government officials. You know, he is, through church leaders, all of these people are authority figures that he's put in place in our lives to help us do what we're called to do. We've got to live within boundaries. We have to set goals that are consistent with the purpose of God in our life. So we have to discern that purpose. We have to discern the will of God, which means we've got to, to be transformed enough and in our communities enough to be able to discern what God is calling us to do and then live within that boundary. We have to be in the process, which means we have to be patient and trust God. He has a plan and a purpose for each one of us, and he has a timetable. 
And so we have got to submit to that process and be patient as we walk through it. Did you ever see Jesus get anxious and say, well, I wish this would just hurry up and get over with. I just want it, and I want it right now. He never said anything like that. He was always tuned in to every step of the process. Every goal, every objective was about the will of the Father. Then we've got to get clear on our mission. Until you can write a clear, cogent, compelling mission statement about your life that your C4 advisors resonate with and affirm, I submit to you, you're not, you're not clear. You're walking around in some ways like the guy at the story at the beginning. You're just going from one one thing to the next with no real sense of direction or purpose. You don't know, you know, what you did at the end of the day. I, you know, I was busy and I'm tired, but I don't know what I did, because mostly you probably were just busy and didn't do a whole lot. You know, a very common thing today is to ask somebody how they're doing and they'll say, "Well, I'm busy," and you know that to me that's never a very good answer because the real answer is. Were you doing what you were called to do? So were you productive? It's not about being busy. It's about being productive. You see, God is into efficiency, and you see that in the parable of the minus. Because he commended the one that took the one mine and turned it into ten. You don't take one of anything and turn it into ten without some level of efficiency operating in you. And so you can see God values profit and efficiency. And so we've got to learn to do his will, and we've got to be very clear, razor clear about what we do. That's the only way we'll have profit and efficiency in our lives. Sixthly, we have to have accountability. This is the, we have to submit to C4 advisors and commissioning agents. If you're not doing that, if you're not seeking counsel, if you're not living in community, with your spouse and other key advisors, then you are probably wandering around. You're probably making a lot of bad mistakes, a lot of bad choices, and you're probably not doing the things that God has called you to do. At least you're probably not doing them nearly as well as you could. You've got to be accountable. And finally, you've got to have the right motive. There's only one right motive, and that is the will of God. And he has ordained that you have a life purpose And so you've got to fulfill that life purpose biblically. That's the only thing you've been authorized to do, and it's the only thing you're going to have support in doing. So that was Jesus' secret. Alignment with the Father. Alignment with the will of God. And when you do that, now you can begin to discern the goals that you need to walk in, and you can begin to line up with the purpose of God in your life. So uh, Lord bless you as you begin to do this. Of course, the whole objective for all of us is to find and fulfill our life purpose. And a wonderful tool to help you on a journey will be continuing to process the SLA material. And remember this, finding and fulfilling your life purpose will make you jump for joy. And that right there is worth it. So I want to, want to pray that the Lord would give you the grace to jump for joy, give you the grace to find His will for, for your life, and give you the grace to do it in Jesus' name.